You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Doc G, and today we're going to earn and invest in understanding the economy. I was petrified, and it wasn't the throbbing laceration on my head that had me so scared. I was eight years old, and I had been running in the backyard, tripped on my shoelace, and fell on the cement and hit my head, which hurt quite a bit. But after crying for a moment, I got over it. But I was petrified because my parents told me I had to go to the emergency room, and I knew that I was going to need stitches. And in an eight-year-old's mind, stitches are the worst thing that can happen to you. I was so afraid of the needle that by the time I got there, I had convinced myself of all the horrible things that were going to happen. So it's no surprise that when the doctor came back and unsheathed the huge needle to give me my lidocaine to start doing the stitches, I screamed and squirmed and tried to move away. It took hours. But eventually I submitted and before I knew it, the stitches were over and I was done. And looking back at that time in my life, I realized how many other things are just like that. How many times is the fear of what's going to happen to us worse than the actual thing when it happens? And especially I've been thinking about that a lot lately with our economy. We've spent so much time in the run-up to this recession worrying about what it will look like. Now that we're here, I wonder, were our fears warranted? And speaking of the economy, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WallHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WallHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at wildhacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S dot com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Karsten Jeske is a retired economist, expert on retirement safe withdrawal strategies, and the blogger behind Early Retirement Now. Karsten, your blog is up for a few Plutus Awards. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
if people don't know what the Plutus Awards are, they are awards for the industry and for people who are in independent financial media. So Karsten has been nominated a few times and is again this year. Rick Ferry has over 30 years of experience in the investment industry, including 10 years as a financial consultant at two major Wall Street firms. And he is the founder and former owner of a large portfolio management firm. And Rick, you are the host of the Bogleheads podcast on investing. Is that right? That's true. Yes. I'm also the president of the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy, which is a nonprofit organization which funds financial literacy basically along the lines of John Bogle's beliefs. And last but definitely not least, Jen Smith is a frequent panelist on Earn and Invest. She is the writer behind the popular blog, Modern Frugality, and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Frugal Friends. Jen, what's going on? I'm just sitting here excited to talk about what we're talking about. I personally have a retirement account, so that's what I can uh, contribute to today's conversation. <laughs> I think you sell yourself <laughs> short. You can contribute quite a bit. Karsten, let's jump right in. What is the definition of a recession? Like we talk about whether we're in a recession or not all the time, but I think most of us don't even really know what that means. Yeah, so a recession is an extended and a deep uh, decline in economic activity. And so we have two states of the world. One is a recession, one is an economic expansion, and we jump back and forth between those two. And so qualitatively, that's that's what I said it is, right? It's a, whether the economy is declining or expanding. And then quantitatively, there's actually a naive definition about a recession that a lot of people might have heard is two quarters in a row of negative growth which is not the textbook definition, but it's a, it's a quasi-definition. Sometimes it, it applies. So there, there has been one recession where that was not even the case, where you had the negative, positive, negative growth rates over three quarters, and it was still a recession, even though you didn't have two back-to-back negative quarters. This time around, we will have a negative growth rate two quarters back-to-back, first quarter and second quarter. But the 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 recession the the true definition that economists would use is not the the quarterly growth rate definition you would look at some additional monthly series and you track them and the advantage of tracking monthly series is that you 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 learn about the data faster so you you're faster to react and faster to respond to to recession and then on top of that you also you can also time the recession down to the month and not down to the quarter so and uh, in the US i guess every country does that differently but in the US we have the so called National Bureau of Economic Research is a big is a big organization that funds economic research and they have a panel of very famous economics professors and they get together regularly and they decide hey is the economy in an expansion or in a recession and they then declare whether the recession has started or not and what is really is sometimes hard to get your head around it is that this panel doesn't do this in real time, right? They, they, they would, they, for example, they announced the start of the recession was in, uh, so, so the end of the expansion was in February. So that means the recession started in March and that announcement only came in June. And uh, now we've had this announcement and we have never heard from them again. So it might as well be possible that the recession is over already. Just the committee hasn't announced it yet because 
of course, they don't want to go back, right? They, they don't, for them, it's not good enough to be 90% sure. They have to be 99.99999% sure. Uh, and there's some challenges in economic data, right? As opposed to financial data, I can tell you how the S&P 500 closed yesterday. That's the number that will never change. But in economic data, and especially in the data that people use to track expansions versus recessions, there are also data revisions. It's not only are there data lags, right? It takes you a few days or weeks to get the economic data for August, right? even though we're in September. August data is not out yet. T- today, uh, for example, employment numbers came out. We're recording this on September 4th. But even the data came out, but it might still be revised, right? So that the NBER doesn't want to make a call about a business cycle turning point and then has to go back and revise it again. So they have to be basically 100% sure. Whereas I'm a blogger, it's okay if I'm uh, maybe 80% sure. And for example... (laughs) I wrote a blog post where I said, you know, uh, the recession has probably lasted only two months. Uh, so the, the peak of the economic expansion of the previous economic expansion was in February 2020. The trough was likely in April. Uh, and then May, we already saw uh, very early signs of, of expansion again. And it has held up pretty, pretty well, despite all the obstacles. And we might already be at the time of recording this four months into a new expansion. And then uh, depending on when this broadcasts, uh, even longer than that. Rick, what Karsten is talking about is the scientific definition, but let's look a little more generally. Is there any doubt in your mind that we were probably in the midst of some type of recession in March and April looking back? I mean, it's unclear what's happening now, but as we look back in March and April, is that a pretty clear thing? off-the-cuff definition is that when your neighbor is out of work, it's a recession. And when you're out of work, it's a depression. <laughs> and a lot of our neighbors have been out of work. So yeah, there's no doubt that we we had an economic downturn. They were negative. I mean, the numbers showed it. We knew this is going to happen. Now we hit bottom very, very quickly. It happened very fast. And we had a very severe downturn in economic activity. So from there, to climb back up from a bottom, it's a recovery, but it's not as though we're back to where we were. So we could be out of the recession, but still have real difficulties eventually in the financial markets and bond market and so forth. So whether we're in a recession or not, technically, it certainly feels like we're still in one. When When you go out to the restaurants and stores and so forth, it still feels very much like we're in a recession. And the, and the unemployment numbers would suggest uh, that we're still in a recession, even though textbook, we're not in a recession right now. Jen, looking at numbers is one thing, but when you talk to your average Joe and Jane community members, do they feel like we're in a recession? I, I don't know if they would call it a recession. I'm sure if they had to label it, they would, but... I think that we we see so much fluctuation when people are living paycheck to paycheck. Like you're not struggling every single month of the year. Some some months you're struggling and then other months you're okay. And so we have people fluctuating at different levels at different times. But I think what we've seen in the past six months is where everybody that was kind of teetering suddenly became struggling at the same time. So we're seeing a lot more of that where our economy could 
you know, keep growing and stuff by these people that were, you know, on the months they're doing well, but now we have a lot of people at the same time that are really tight and pinching pennies. And so it's going to take a while for people to be comfortable to start spending money again or to even have the money to spend again. So that's kind of where I see a lot of people at right now socially. Jen, do you think people are a little shell-shocked from 2008? They kind of remember what it felt like back then and therefore are very careful now as they see the economy doing worse than they thought it would? So it's a little different than 2008 in where there a lot of uh, the homeowners were impacted, whereas right now, for the like most part, homeowners are not as impacted as renters are. And so I I think they see it differently. So people there were in 2008 were losing their homes and they were scared of that. And here they're just losing their jobs and income in general. And so when you lose your home, you can always go rent. But when you lose your income, like what, and there's no jobs, like that's scarier. And so I think people are still, their heads are still spinning. Carson, one of the ways we as the populace form opinions on such things is we look at what's being reported in the news. And recently they've been talking about the GDP being down 32.9%. And you've made a point of saying that that's not exactly the right way to state what's going on right now. Why is that? Right. So again, this is all the economists' fault. This is how we report numbers in the U.S. Different countries do it differently, but in the U.S., we report quarterly growth numbers as annualized numbers. So if the economy falls by, say, nine point something percent quarter to quarter, economists annualize that. And so they they do that thought experiment. If we had that same growth rate for an entire year, what would be that annualized growth rate? And the reason for that is if you're doing, if you're going through normal times, right, you want to know, is the economy expanding at a, at an annual pace of, of 2% or 3%, right? So then the quarterly numbers are reported as 2.4% or 2.8%. It's not really 2.4, 2.8. It's a much smaller number, but then annualized to that number. So we get a better sense of, of what that annualized growth rate is. So in this particular instance, annualizing the number, of course, they're not going to change the, the, the procedure here, right? So they, the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis releases that same number in, in the same statistical transformation there. And uh, so it, it looked really harsh, minus 32%. And some people might have said, yeah, I mean, the economy dropped by 32%. I mean, just look at, I mean, the malls were completely empty. Restaurants were totally dead. It might have been 30%, but quite intriguingly, it was only, quote unquote, minus 9.5%, which was quarter over quarter, which was still one of the worst drops ever. I don't have quarterly numbers from back during the Great Depression, but you, you had annual numbers that, that were somewhere somewhere up there in the 20%. Yeah, but I mean, it looked like probably the worst decline in economic activity. And, and again, the reason is that it was a very coordinated and synchronized uh, shutdown. Say, as opposed to, say, the global financial crisis, right? We went through different stages, right? So it probably first hit uh, the home builders and then the mortgage industry and then the overall finance industry. And, the, and that the, every quarter, another sector slipped into the recession. 
Uh, and that's how you had this this very long and extended slip into a recession, and then also a very long and extended uh, move out of the recession. Whereas this time, right, everything shut down basically on March 13th, and everybody everybody's shutdown was synchronized. But considering how bad things were, I mean, I, a lot of people are surprised that why why was it only 9.5 percent? It seemed a lot worse. The good news is a lot of economic activity is counted in GDP, for example, even though you don't really observe it, right? I mean, you have a checking account, you, you didn't shut down your checking account, right? So that's, that, that service is counted in GDP. If you own your own house, that you, you never see any payment, but it is counted as a service flow. It's, it's counted as almost if you rent the house to yourself, and then that rental income, even though it's only implicit, not explicit, that's counted in GDP. Well, that didn't go down. So there are a lot of components of GDP that were not down at all. Uh, but then, of course, there are some sectors like travel, entertainment, hospitality, they, they were hurting much worse than minus 9.5. They were probably hurting much worse than minus 32%. And by the way, they are not recovering yet either. So economists, yeah, you work with aggregate data and so, some of the some of the, the micro data gets lost when you aggregate. And we are aware of this, but look, I mean, this, if you're an economist and you're a macroeconomist, that's, that's that's the first number you look at before you even look at the micro data. You you start looking at the the macro data. And by the way, I mean the, you also you can also find out GDP data, not just the aggregate data. You can also drill down in different categories, different sectors, different regions of the country. So it's it's not that that data is ignored. It's just if it's reported and you have to report one single number pretty much or. or a small set of numbers, so to to keep everything keep everything simple. Rick, this drop of thirty two point nine percent, and the idea that it's kind of spurious when you think about it, really speaks to an interesting phenomenon. As Karsten was saying, everything shut down, and we saw this quick drop of GDP of 9.5%. But if we get a quick recovery, the annualized numbers might be a lot better than 32.9%. This sounds a little funny, right? Our economy drops out suddenly because of this pandemic and quarantine, and now looks two to three months into it like it is really starting to recover. Could this be the shortest recession of all times defined by two bad months or two bad quarters and then bounce right back? Well, as Carson said, yes, that's technically what happened and will happen, uh, that this is the shortest recession on record because it fell so much so fast. And then it's just a gradual recovery. Somebody, Some people call it the Nike swish recovery, if you will. We drop very quickly, and then we're just going to slowly gain. And then this, as we slowly gain, of course, is technically we're not in a recession. So it, we, it could take five years to get back up to where we were. I don't know if it's going to take that long, but it could, depending on the virus and depending if there's another recurrence, uh, depending how fast we get vaccines out, depending whether or not people actually take the vaccine, right? I mean, there's going to be a, a certain segment of the population that's not going to want to get vaccinated. So it could be a, you know, a very slow, gradual recovery, but it's all positive GDP. The question you know, for retirees is, you know, how does this affect you? How does this affect your investment portfolio? How does it affect interest rates? How does it affect the stock market? How does it affect your, your income? How does it affect inflation? Because inflation affects the amount of increase you get if you're on social security. So there's a lot of 
issues that are yet to be resolved as we look at this recovery and see how long it takes. Jen, Rick brings up an interesting question when he talks about the stock market. And a lot of us novices have been watching the stock market go up and down and feel like there's no really reflection of what's happening with the economy. Do you feel like the stock market has misled us in some senses? I think so, especially those of us who are still working and making money. I think we're seeing, I mean, at least I am seeing a lot of normalcy as somebody who's always worked from home and used Zoom a lot. But I think that's deceptive because there's a huge, like, sect of people who it is going to take them like that Nike swoosh, like a, you know, it's going to be a gradual upswing. It's, they're not going to get back to normal kind of as quickly as we have. Carson, we've mentioned a few times that this might be a very quick recession. Tell me what types of indicators you look at to tell you that we're starting that long swoosh back upwards as opposed to heading back down. Yeah, so some of the faster moving indicators that are that have in the past correlated both with uh, both as an early indicator for both recessions and then also the end of the recessions are some of the softer indicators. So the so basically surveys. So there's a there's a so the so called PMI purchasing managers index, and uh, that's a pretty reliable indicator and again you can always say well maybe the next recession is not gonna it's not gonna work but it has worked relatively reliably in the past and so by the way that indicator for the u.s and, and then there are different different sub flavors right one is for one is for manufacturing one is for the services industry then there's the main index you can also look at some of the sub indexes like uh, new orders or employment but yeah i mean in in the u.s probably these kinds of indicators were the indicators that got closest to a V-shaped recovery, right? So you went down two months from the from the pre-COVID to the bottom, and yeah, you didn't quite recover in exactly two months, but you probably recovered back to above back to back to healthy category in maybe three to four months. So th- these were, and and by the way, I'm not making. So sometimes you you want to show something and then you look for the indicators that that do that right i mean i i for example i've been using this kind of indicator for as long as i've worked right so i've worked both in economics and then also in finance but using macroeconomics to help people in finance i i, I have a cfa charter too so i i've also I, when I worked uh, in, in finance, so we also helped people with portfolio management uh, and, and people would be, so pension funds and endowments and stuff. So, and even uh, throughout all of that career, basically, this, this, these are some of the indicators that I, I would have been using. So one is the PMI, and then some of them are the, are the hard indicators, right? So if you look at, for example, the unemployment rate came out today. So unemployment spiked by over 10 percentage points in just two months. And then it started creeping down. And it's surprising how quickly we are going down already in the unemployment rate. So we've already covered half the the rise. If you compare that to 2008-9, I think the peak in unemployment was actually past the, the recession end. It was in October 2009. And then unemployment was basically just moving sideways. It was below... 10%, but it was, it was bouncing around between 9.6 and 9.8, say, for another year. And then very slowly, it started creeping down. It basically it took you four years 
to go halfway, not all the way down to where you started before the recession, but it took you four years to just go halfway into the, into the, into the low 7% range again. So now we're basically, this is basically both the recession and the expansion seem to be on fast forward speed here because we, it took us four months to cover half, half the rise in the unemployment rate. So walk that down, walk half, half of it down again. So there's, a, there's definitely a sense that, that we are in an expansion. Of course, it, it can't be fast enough, right? There will always be people <laughs> that, that are hurting, right? That if you're in the, in the entertainment industry. I, I noticed that, so for example, for us bloggers, right? So you saw uh, that your, your RPMs and CPMs or whatever it's called, that was probably down during the recession. That's, that's probably coming back if you, if you follow that kind of stuff. So everybody's hurting and uh, again, the recession is not whether people are hurting. The recession is whether the number of people hurting goes down. So, th- and this is this probably explains the confusion, right? Uh, so, because you brought up this example about medical, right? So, uh, doctors would say, "Well, you're done with your hospital treatment if you are pretty close to healed." Or, uh, but it's it's so the recession is basically uh, if you use the analogy of the hospital visit, right? The recession is as long as things get worse and it's basically after the after the surgery that's already when your expansion when your recovery starts so that would already be called the recovery and you're getting better you're still in the hospital it's everything is hurting and everything is sore but uh, it's getting less sore and that is already an improvement and uh, so that that's that's where maybe this disconnect comes between economists who who sometimes can seem cruel and humorless in, in, in that sense, right? And, and the real world, where obviously a lot of people are still hurting. And this is, this is exactly this, this problem with aggregate data. The economy is down 9.5%. That means that it could be that everybody is losing 9.5%, or it could be that 9.5% of the people lost everything and everybody else is still okay. So, or it could be a combination of the two. So, so anyways, so a lot of macroeconomic data looks obviously very good. I mean, the stock market itself is obviously a leading economic indicator. You can also uh, look at some of the other stress indicators like high yield spreads, the TED spread, that's, that's the difference between three-year yields between, between what banks charge each other and what the federal government pays. So that spread between the two is a, is a kind of a stress indicator. So that's down to normal levels again. So is it really, no matter where you look, I mean, the direction looks good, but admittedly, there's still a lot of pain and it's, it's going to take some time, to, some time to dig ourselves out. So my, my personal estimate is that it's probably going to take a total of two and a half years, two to two and a half years to dig, to dig out of this just to get to the pre-COVID GDP level. Okay. And, and that, that, that would entail, we, we, we're going to have a very strong growth number in the third quarter, right? And so, and, and that, would, that would assume there are no more outbreaks and everything. This is, this is already kind of my best case scenario. And even that, it still takes two to two and a half years to, to come out of this. And, and there could be some downside at risk to that too, right? Rick, are there any indicators that speak to you specifically, either numerically or otherwise, that tell us we're moving in the right direction? Well, I think you really have to you know, watch the unemployment rate and the length of time that people have been on unemployment, which is also critical because if you're only on unemployment for a few months, you know, your finances get hit, but then you can recover. But if you're on unemployment for a year 
or a year and a half or two and a half years. Now you have real structural problems and uh, you may, it, it would take, could take a decade to recover. So again, a lot of it is based on how quickly the governors decide to open up their economies as to whether the service industries, the entertainment industry, the travel industry, airlines, even the energy industry, you know, whether it and how, how long it takes to come back. And it, the longer it takes to come back, we start hearing talk of companies such as ExxonMobil uh, laying people off. That's, that's a huge company, employs hundreds of thousands of people, and they start laying people off. So it just, it, it just causes the, and those are high paying jobs too. It, it causes the, 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 the recovery to, to slow. So, you know, unemployment, the length of unemployment, what large corporations are saying, I pay attention to, to, to that. You know, maybe they're not in economic indicators, but per se, but, you know, what, what large companies are, are saying about the future and what they're doing in order to try to, to keep their, their revenues up and to keep their profitability up. And at some point, if your profitability continues to fall, you, the, the easiest, quickest way to keep profitability is to start cutting people. So, but that has implications for how long this recovery takes. Jen, we've been talking about different indicators you can look at to help us decide where we're going with our economy. But it also hits me that some of this is just very difficult to predict. Things like the coronavirus and the elections, do you think those will play a major role in what happens with our economy? For sure. And it's it's such a a complicated thing to figure out. And I was so excited to sit in on this conversation, like with some such smart people and kind of hear and learn for myself to figure out how, you know, how I should be thinking and how I should be directing, like even my own, you know, financial life. Cause it's it's so it's so complex. <laughs> to think about. And yeah, I just, it's something I'm just starting to now because there's been so much unknown that now that we're kind of on, you know, hopefully this path that is upward trending, it's just now that I've been able to kind of, you know, dig my head out of the sand and start to think about this topic. In the first half of the show, Karsten, Jen, and Rick talk about how we define recessions. After the break, we delve into the long-term effects of our current economy. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com 
Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check us out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. So, Rick, I want to transition a little because I think we, as a group, have come to the conclusion that likely or hopefully we are at the beginning of a slow recovery. And I want to start to talk about the effects that this might have on our own long-term economic well-being. Some of the legislation and the stimulus package made it easier for people to access some of their retirement savings. Do you think a lot of people ended up needing to, quote-unquote, raid the cookie jar? And how is that going to affect their long-term planning? You know, quite frankly, I don't have the numbers on how many people actually went into their 401k and started taking money out. Maybe Karsten does, but I, I haven't seen you know, much data. In fact, I haven't seen any data on how many people actually have taken money out of their retirement accounts in this, this dur- during this pandemic downturn. Th- this does have a huge impact on how people save and invest in retirement. Uh, you know, unfortunately, about half of our retirees don't have a lot of money and they're invested in fixed income investments. So the average retiree might retire with $200,000 plus Social Security, plus maybe the equity in their home. And that's all they have. And their $200,000 is sitting in a CD at a bank. I mean, it's not invested in equities. So they're not participating in the equity markets. They're participating in a half a percent or maybe 1% yield at best, which is below the inflation rate that you're able to get from fixed income. So this, what's going on, the second level of all this is this dispersion or the, the gap between the haves and the haves not, have nots is getting bigger. And as the, this, the gap between the haves and the have nots get bigger, that creates a lot of social issues, a lot of social unrest, which we're seeing. And that has big implications and big implications for policy changes in Washington. And uh, big implications for the haves, the people who are making money and, and participating in the stock market. Taxation later on down the road. I mean, who's going to pay for all of this money that was spent by the federal government? So these are the things that eventually, ultimately, are going to affect people's lives in the short, in the long term. So in the short term, yes, it's the pandemic. It's the recession. It's, uh, you know, being on unemployment for a while. But in the, what the, there's going to be some very large ch- changes see changes in, in retirement savings and how we save for retirement and the types of things that we might use for retirement. We're already seeing annuities being introduced into 401k plans so that you can you, you would have some sort of a uh, longevity insurance if you were, you know, you won't outlive your money. So it, there's a lot of changes going on and it's feeding right into this, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in the right now with the pandemic uh, recession. So I, I think about those things. And, you know, as an investment advisor, 
and I still, that's what I do for a living. I am an investment advisor and just doing hourly, helping people hourly. Now I don't manage money anymore. I don't sell any products, but we have a long discussion about what does this all mean for investors in the future? And there's a lot of changes going on. A lot of people who are wondering whether they should be, what they should do with their fixed income. They should, could they go more to equity? So this is a big gorilla discussion that we're having out there. Yeah, I don't know if we should be looking so much at more people taking out of their 401ks. But personally for us, we didn't take out of our 401k, but my husband's in the airline industry and he was put on half pay because he could not be furloughed as part of you know their bailout. So we have a percentage going into his 401k, which for several months was cut in half. And so you'll see a lot of people contributing less to their 401ks for probably they'll set it and forget it. So you could have several years where people are contributing less. And then also the people most affected who probably would have taken out of their 401ks work in jobs where they don't offer 401ks. And so they didn't have access to that. So I don't know if we'll see so many people pulling from their retirement accounts versus people contributing less. Carson, take off your economist hat and put on your finance hat for a moment. Do you feel that retirement strategies will change because of this recession and what's happened? Are people going to be planning differently now? The, some of the parameters that go into your planning will be different. I mean, I, I don't think that you have to completely change the way you think about retirement, right? But I'm concerned about the people that have mostly fixed income assets, right? What, what are they going to do now? They, if they had their fixed income assets in some kind of a bond fund, as okay, good for you. You had a nice run up because yields went down so much. But what do you do now, right? I mean, yields are so low. Equities now seem really expensive. Do you want to now buy ex- shift into equities at or near the peak, right? So you miss the the good buying opportunity in March, and yeah, so uh, I'm I'm definitely worried if you were to retire now, right? And you you do basically the fire thing, right? Where you you target this 25x, right? And you you see you're inching towards the 25x, and yes, I'm at 25.0001. Now I retire, and you retire at four percent, and you you retire on a $625,000 portfolio because you think you can live on $25,000 a year. So, I mean, I think uh, in light of very low asset expected returns, so equities seem very expensive, no matter what measure you you look at, whether you use price earnings ratios, uh, backward looking, forward looking, the CAPE ratio, equities seem very expensive. Bonds seem very expensive. Bond yields are very low. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely want to take down your, your initial withdrawal rate a little bit. So that's, that's, the, that's, the, pure, that's the pure finance and the, and the numbers thing. Now, and, and, and by the way, I share a lot of the, the concerns that, that uh, Rick and Jen mentioned, right? So, so inequality is a, is a huge issue, right? I mean, you, I've traveled a lot and I've traveled and visited some absolute beautiful vacation spots. And you look at, you look at how residential neighborhoods look there, right? And every single house has a wall around itself, around the, around the house with barbed wire on top, with a metal gate, with a sign in the front. This is the, this is the armed securities uh, company that's uh, monitoring this property, right? And then you see very poor people out in the streets, 
So uh, there, there is a concern that uh, a huge inequality will eventually come back and haunt us in, in terms of this, this more fear and concern and social unrest This is going to be bad for productivity. Again, being this very heartless and humorless economist, again. So th- I think there's, there's some concern that this, this might all create low growth rates and low productivity in the future. And, and again, everything is tied in the end to, to the economy, right? If, if the economy doesn't grow as quickly as, as it has in the past, then don't expect, don't expect 8% or 10% equity returns uh, going forward, right? There's, everything is tied to the economy. The, the stock market is, not, is, is a random walk for all practical purposes over short horizons, but uh, long-term growth rates are definitely tied to, to the economic health and economic growth and productivity growth, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, definitely concerned about some of some of these societal issues here. Rick, I feel like we're almost having two different conversations. The middle to upper class were probably heavy in equities and took an original hit, but will recover fairly quickly. And yet, people on the lower socioeconomic spectrum who probably are not as invested in equities will have real long-term consequences from this downturn. Yes, it's exactly what's happening. And, you know, the rich are getting richer. Now, I'm not, I'm not commenting about it myself politically. I'm just saying this is what's happening. Those people who, could, uh, who had 401k plans, who were making good livings, who were putting money away into the equity market, people who own companies, you know, certainly the Silicon Valley group of people who are on the tech side, service side of our economy, who have equity, uh, have done very well. I mean, not only have they recovered, but they've actually made money here in, uh, in this market. And then there's the other group, right? And, and the other group has not. And they have been relying on government safety nets. And as the government gets deeper and deeper into debt, we have to do things like monetize the debt through a higher inflation number, which the Fed has been talking about, now not targeting 2%, but an average of 2%, while you keep interest rates very low, which basically means the government is able to borrow money and make money on every dollar they borrow because it's a negative interest rate. And by the way, charge you taxes also on whatever half a percent interest you might get from a 10-year treasury. You still have to pay taxes on that. So it, this, and this is where you know, people who don't have a lot of money, when they do have money, they're putting it in the bank. They might be buying a CD or something. And, and it's just it's, this spread is just going to get wider. And what's the solution for that? I mean, if you're looking down the road, what's the solution for that? And again, I'm not making a political statement, but the, but the solution is, as the Fed inflates away, this deficit. The other solution is they got to take it from the people who have money to pay for the people who don't have money to continue to create that social safety net for them so that people don't continue to riot in the streets. So we're talking about higher taxes. And, you know, we're talking about maybe changing the stepped up basis on uh, when you die for estate planning and, and, and so forth. There's, there's a lot of changes that are going to take place and it's going to affect the people who have have benefited and, and are, have done well and have not felt the economic downturn of the coronavirus. Yeah, maybe they didn't go out to eat. Maybe they didn't get to take their vacation in Europe this year or whatever. And again, I'm not being political about this, but the, but the bottom line is that this is where the money has to come from. And that's going to change things. It's going to change how people invest. It's going to change how 
motivated people are to start new companies. And Kirsten's right. I mean, the, the fact is that Kirsten's right. The, 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 the market is, is pricing in growth based on growth that we hope occurs and we're buying into that, the hope that the, the growth occurs, but where else are you going to go with your money? If you have money, I mean, you're going to get a half a percent rate of return on, on bonds. The answer is no, you're going to go more and more into equities. Equities are, are yielding uh, 2%. If you look at a global equity dividend yield, about 2%, well, that's better than a half a percent. Plus you might get some upside. You got to suffer with some volatility, but the bottom line is there's going to be a lot of changes going on here in the future. Yeah, so uh, a good point. So I think the the almost ironic thing is that a lot of people now have to shift into equities, whether they like it or not. So it's basically 60-40 is dead, and now people would propose, hey, you have to do 75-25 or 80-20. Or it's this acronym TINA, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. Everything else, is, is the yields are so low. Uh, especially for for us in the fire community, right? If you have only 60% equities and 40% bonds and bonds pay you maybe a percent, how are you going to survive for 50, 60 years if 40% of your portfolio yields only less than inflation, right? Significantly less than inflation for US treasuries. And then, yeah, you could pump it up a little bit with corporate bonds, but then you basically introduce equity exposure through the back door. We're going to have, have to take more risk to enjoy retirement. And it's, it's, it's really trading off risk, right? So you have more risk uh, in the short term and uh, because of a higher equity, equity exposure. Because if you don't, you're going to introduce a lot of longevity risk, basically. Right? You're not going to make it with 40% bonds over a 50-year retirement. Jen, I started this conversation pointedly by bringing up this story of getting stitches and how my fear of the needle was worse than the procedure itself. And I was going to ask you at the end of this talk, was this recession, a recession which we all believed happened, anticlimactic? And I'm almost questioning that question because mm -hmm. clearly that depends on who you are. For those in the lower socioeconomic class, I think this was very climactic and will have long-term consequences. But according to what Rick and Carson are saying, even for those who hold large amounts of equities, they're going to have to plan different and adjust. This was a big deal. Yeah. And so I don't want people to get too over worried because, and, and so actually personal capital has done this great thing where just over the summer, they added a recession estimator to their retirement planner. So you can see what historic recessions, if they were to occur again, what it would look like for your retirement plan, your specific retirement plan. And so that can be very encouraging. I looked at it for my own and it is, I hope it, it, people will try that out and get gain historically accurate predictions to say that, yes, it's, it was a recession, possibly the shortest recession in history. But even if it were to go on for two, two and a half years or maybe more, that it will not devastate your finances. It shouldn't keep you from investing and planning for, you know, your retirement. But yeah, it is still something to 
think about heart. It's not something to just gloss over. I'm starting to transition some of what I talk about into we can't just talk about saving money and frugality, but we also have to talk about closing this wealth gap. So it's not just a wage gap anymore. It's a wealth gap. Over since the Great Depression, the top, I think it was one or 10%, their wealth has grown by 650% over that time. Whereas the top, whereas the bottom 50%, their wealth has grown 150% in the same time frame. So this is a problem we had before February of 2020. And so now it's something we are going to have to be more intentional about closing. We can't just talk about living on tight budgets and, you know, gritting our teeth and powering through. We have to be, we have to take it upon ourselves to be more intentional in closing this wealth gap for ourselves. Rick, when long-term investors hit a recession and hit the panic button and sell everything, they always use this, the excuse, well, it was different this time. Mm-hmm. And most of the time we kind of say, yeah, that's what everyone always says. So my question to you is with this recession, was it different this time? Are there structural changes that will make the future different than it was from 2008 or from, you know, the tech bubble in the early 2000s? It, it is different. And because interest rates are negative. Uh, meaning below the inflation rate. So negative real rates. And the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, has basically said they're going to stay that way for a long time. And if the long end of the yield curve, 10-year, 30-year, start to increase, they might put yield curve controls. At least they'll actually announce yield curve controls, not that they're already doing it because they, they are. But it's not just the United States. I mean, it's all over the world. There are negative interest rates in Europe negative interest rates in Japan. I mean, so we have negative interest rates already in the world, and that's real nominal negative interest rates and and real rates of return, which would include inflation. It's even worse. Uh, We're hanging in there in the United States with some positive nominal rates, but if the Fed wants to get the inflation rate over 2% for a while, and they want to keep interest rates low, we're going to go to negative 2% real return on interest. So, and And they want to keep it there. This is the this is the issue. They want to keep it there for a long time. Europe, Switzerland, Germany has had negative interest rates for a while. And we, you know, we get into that realm of negative interest rates, negative nominal rates. It could stick around for a long time. So yes, it has changed. This time is different. It, 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 we need to think about how we might adjust our portfolios to what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our retirement? So it is different. I mean, I, you know, to say people say this time it's different. So they want to sell everything. I mean, I don't agree with that at all. We're talking here about this time it's different. Let's increase our risk as opposed to this time it's different. Let's decrease our risk. Increasing your risk this time may mean go more into bonds. That might be the increase in risk. Oddly enough, even though the market is high, on fundamental reasons, you know, if you look at any indicator, it's re- it's relatively high. Even future forward-looking earnings, the risk might be being in bonds in the long term. Now, that's that's a big change. Karsten, does any of this shake your belief and trust in investing in the American economy and the U.S. stock market? Are there any radical beliefs that maybe? 
the time as the United States being supreme and our economic markets being the most stable has passed? So some people would argue that, oh, well, we don't have to worry about anything. We're going to have a huge productivity boost from artificial intelligence. So let's rely on that. So that could actually, it's, it's, uh, it's not a crazy point. So that, that could be maybe the saving grace for everything that this will create a new industrial revolution that will make everything more productive. And so that, that, that could save our behind. But uh, if that doesn't happen, I, mean, I definitely share some of the concerns that Rick raised. So I, I actually think it's, I used to work for the Federal Reserve and I, I look a little bit w- with some worries at what the, what the Fed is doing because it, it seems that central banks around the world are trying to create inflation through low interest rates, right? And Japan has been trying to do that for 30 years now and uh, it, it doesn't work. I think at some point it beca- using monetary policy and low interest rates and bond buying strategies, they become basically pushing a string, right? So the monetary policy can probably do a pretty good job during some absolutely crazy crisis period, like the global financial crisis, or probably at the peak of the, of the Corona crisis. I think that it was good that the, that the federal reserve steps in and, and calms everybody's nerves. But I'm, I'm actually worried about the opposite, not the inflation side. I'm worried about some, some sclerotic uh, deflationary low inflation or deflationary economy with uh, with very low inflation or even deflation and uh, subpar growth and so that basically that you have these mountains of debt because that that's the that's the other side effect of low interest rates the, the federal re, the federal government now says hey i mean interest rates are really low let's just issue all of the debt that we can at this uh, at this good a rate basically the the people are paying us to borrow money so that that all of this debt and debt overhang is just going to be this wet blanket on the economy because everybody knows that eventually that has to be paid, right? And uh, so there's, there's something in economics that's called Ricardian equivalence that says that you, it, it doesn't matter whether the, whether the government issues debt or hits everybody over the head right now with taxes, right? Because you can either, you can either be taxed right away or the government issues debt and then we'll be taxed later. And uh, so a lot of politicians seem to be under the, under the, under the belief that well we can just we can just issue debt we don't have to raise taxes but the the rational investors and rational participants in the economy and, and maybe not everybody is rational but it's maybe if, if it's enough if 80% of the economy acts halfway rational they will take that into account hey there's a lot of debt uh, that's going to be future taxes this is going to be bad for productivity growth so this is all going to have side effects so i'm, I'm making the same point that that rick made is just just giving you a different angle so this is the this is the economist angle so there's actually some economic theory that that's behind that. So having, having this sclerotic growth plus low inflation plus high debt, that's, that, that could be really bad for the economy. And, and everybody says, oh, it's, we're going to create inflation, but the inflation never comes. And then what do you do with this mountain of debt? And it never inflates away. That's, that's definitely the danger out there. I definitely come out of this conversation with both optimism and worry. Optimism that we might have come through the worst of this Mm -hmm. and we're starting to move in a positive trajectory, but worry that it is a rocky road ahead where we're going to have to face 
all of these issues, including inequality and inflation, and really the unknowns that lay in our future. One thing that does make me feel good is that I have people like you all to come and talk to our community about it and help us read those tea leaves so that ultimately we can make the right decisions. I want to take a moment to give each of you a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where we can find you on the internet if we want to learn more. Jen, let's start with you. What's going on? Yeah, so you can find me every Friday in the same podcast app you're listening to this, Frugal Friends Podcast, uh, and then online at modernfrugality.com. And Rick, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? My website is rickferry.com, and I do a podcast called Bogleheads on Investing every month where I have a special guest. Every guest is special, and that's uh, doing very well. But I also, on a right, what my job is, is to help people who are managing their own portfolios, and I charge an hourly fee to help people manage their own portfolios. So I'm no longer managing money. And I no longer, you know, I'm not in the brokerage industry, so I have no skin in the game. But that, that's what I do on a, on a daily basis. And you can find out about that at rickferry.com. And Karsten, take us out. What's up next in your life and where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me at earlyretirementnow.com. One long word, earlyretirementnow.com. And yeah, I'm blogging there maybe every week, every two weeks, and just blogging away and enjoying early retirement. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jen Smith, Rick Ferry, and Karsten Jeske. That's a wrap. I've been thinking a lot about the recession lately. I've been here at my home with my family. My kids have been virtual schooling. My wife has continued to work from home as she has had for the last 15 years. And all of my hospice meetings became virtual. And the truth of the matter is, our lives didn't change that much. So when the recession hit, and we were in the midst of the first few months, the truth of the matter is, I didn't feel like my life had really changed. And now as I listen to Karsten, Rick, and Jen talk about how the recession is over, it's really easy to believe that we withered this storm and are none the worse. We withered this storm and are none the worse. Or maybe that's how I feel. It's really easy to forget that we have a bifurcated economic society. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the people in the upper half or even in the upper 10 or 1% have really not felt the pain of this recession. It has been life as usual. In fact, when you get to the very tip top, the business owners, especially of businesses like Amazon and Google, etc., this has been great economically for them. They have been thriving. They are making more money than ever. On the other hand, when you look at the lower socioeconomic class, those people who were scrapping to make a living to start with, this recession, this two-month period that we are calling the fastest recession ever recorded, has been devastating. We've used the term K-type 
recovery, right? So the idea is those people in the upper socioeconomic class have recovered incredibly quickly, and those in the lower socioeconomic class are still struggling quite a bit. This could be a slow recovery for a good part of our country. And it's easy to lose sight of that. I've talked about this idea before that before I always figured that whether you reached financial stability, whether you could reach financial independence was really about who you are as a person, how educated you are, how much you research and study and work. And it was really easy for me to just decide that personal responsibility is the only factor involved when it comes to wealth and well-being. This economy drives home the point that successful or not, smart or not, this economy is really difficult for a lot of people. There are a lot of people struggling out there, and where you start affects where you end. So when you start on top, it's not really as hard to end up on top. And when you start on the bottom, it's all the more hard to struggle upwards, especially in the midst of an economic downturn or a recession. So you'll hear me say this at Earn and Invest, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. While I don't think everyone can reach the economic heights, while I don't think everyone can make it towards financial independence, I do feel strongly that everyone can improve their current finances. So if you're in massive debt, I believe you can pay down some of that debt or pay it off completely. If you are debt-free and yet have no savings, I feel you can start working on an emergency fund. And if you have just funded your emergency fund and haven't done anything more, then it's time to start thinking about retirement savings or investing. These are incremental steps. They are incremental levels of growth I think we focus too much on the end point. We talk about being rich or being financially independent or being wealthy. And I think that end goal is just not nearly as important as making steps forward every month or every year, having incremental gains and being able to wither the downturns. This is what I've learned after watching this recession, that You may not make it to that quote-unquote nirvana of financial well-being that you're looking for, but you can be better a little bit every day. And certainly, we hopefully can help you do that here at Earn and Invest by bringing on community members as well as experts who can give you those little tips and hints on how to get ahead. There's no question that everyone starts at a different point. And the truth of the matter is, all of our goals should probably be different also. But that doesn't change the fact that we can all try to move forward. Together. Better. Here on Earn and Invest. Cool. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed this so much. Yeah. I was very much looking forward to this conversation. Just 
Rick, Carson, to hear from you guys. Super a, a privilege. It was fun. It was, it was great nice. fun. Thank you. It was, it was scary nice. in a, scary in a way. <laughs> well, I know sometimes <laughs> the one thing about my podcast is people don't know what to expect a lot, especially mm. because I do get very different guests together sometimes. But ultimately, I try to pull it all together so we have a general theme and idea. And I, I really liked how this one carried through because we we went from talking about the recession to talking about some real meaty subjects like uh, our economic inequalities and what's that's what this is going to mean to them. And I really did come out of this a little different than I, when I went in. I, I, I felt both the optimism and pessimism together, but in very different ways. So I found this very educational. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.